Hi, Bill Troiani here from New York City. You're listening to Talking Blues. You say New York City, but I'm actually talking to you in Oslo, correct? That's right. So how are things in Oslo? Well, it's uh, the gigs are starting off again after about 18 months, 19 months. So uh, it's not as, not as much as it used to be, but and uh, there's a little bit of the new uh, variant here, but not that much. And uh, we're not wearing masks most of the time now, and the bars are starting to open up. Everyone's getting vaccinated as soon as possible. So, so that's encouraging. Yeah, it's kind of like what's going on in Denmark. You were recently honored by the Nakaden Blues Festival. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, every year they give a blues prize. It's like an old Shure microphone on a stuck on a piece of granite with a plaque. And uh, I, I was really, really surprised. I never in a million years thought they were going to give it to me, but they did. For my, uh, I've been here for over twenty-two years, and I've played with a lot of the Norwegian blues people, and I. And a lot of young guitar players came up through the jam band, not the jam band, the house band we had at a blues club here called Muddy Waters. Amon Moorrood came up through there. Kid Anderson who's not doing very well out in California. They were both very, very young. And there, matter of fact, Kid Anderson was too young to be in the bar. When started. <laughs> but Terry Hank came by a few times and took Kid back to California. And he's been there ever since. So that's a, quite an honor. Yeah, yeah, I was shocked and very surprised. So you didn't know anything about this until you got there? I didn't know anything about it until they announced my name. I was standing backstage waiting to go on with Kid Anderson and his wife, Lisa. And they said, we got to go backstage. We have to be ready to go on as soon as they finish the announcement. I didn't even know they were announcing the prize because it's all in Norwegian. And I don't really speak Norwegian that well, <laughs> even though I've been here so long. <laughs> okay, so it's possible for you to live in Oslo and tour around Norway without oh, yeah. really speaking Norwegian. Well, yeah, everyone speaks English, especially the musicians. A lot of people send me their lyrics and I correct their English, you know. I tell them, just send it to me. I do it for nothing, just to be nice, you know. Right. And uh, they all want to speak English and they want to get better at it because, you know, that's where really the record industry is. Industry. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So I want to get deeper into that, but let's start, let's go back. Um, okay. I, I believe your stepfather was... He played music. I think he might have had some influence in getting you into music. Oh, yeah. Tell me about how you, you got What's into music. What's the chagrin, I'm sure. He was a sax player in the 30s. And then uh, and during World War II, he was a sax player in the uh, in the Army band, traveling around, one of the Army bands traveling around. And when um, I got to junior high school, they, uh, they, I could either do it in two years or three years because of an accelerated program. And uh, I took the long one. And, uh, and they offered me either journalism or the chamber orchestra. And my stepfather, who was a jazz, into jazz, says, go join the chamber orchestra and take up the upright bass. <laughs> I'm sure he regretted that. How old were you? I was 11. The, the uh, instructor, the teacher, had to take me downstairs and see if my hand would fit around the, the neck of the upright bass. I, I wonder, so why did your stepfather suggest the bass of all instruments? Because it, it was a chamber orchestra, so with string instruments, and there were no horns, right? And he, and he thought if I played upright bass, I could play jazz, I guess. Because he was a big jazz nut. Interesting. Okay, so you're 11. Uh, obviously, your hands fit around the neck. Just barely. Tough instrument to pick up 
I would, I mean, not pick up, literally pick up, like t- tough instrument to carry home and practice, right? Well, I had one at home. I didn't take it to school. Did oh, you did? Okay. Um, and then did the, the upright bass come to you easily? No. I was terrible. <laughs> I was really bad. But um, I joined a band. Uh, in, in just about a year later, two years later, I joined a band in my in, in my neighborhood, my neck of the woods in, in New York City, and uh, I was playing upright bass for a while with a mag, what a, a pickup that you kind of like pasted to the to the side of the bass, had a little volume control on it. It was terrible. It's not a terrible, just you know, couldn't get it loud enough without feedback and stuff like that. But we, that's how I started on the band. Was this the post war baby boom blues, blues band? band? Yeah, and this was with Paul Stanley. Yeah, he came. He was he was the last uh, last guy to join the band. He was a rhythm guitar player. We had uh, another guy before him. My friend John Rail was playing uh, guitar and, and singing. I was singing. We had a guy named Daniel Fossi on drums. He came from Morocco. And what kind of music was this? Oh, we were playing. Uh, uh, we did a little Bob Dylan. We did the um, Paul Butterfield band. I sang that Nick Ravenetti's tune, born in Chicago. Uh, we sang uh, some Elvie Brothers, some uh, uh, some old blues, you know, we just rearrange it and stuff like that, you know. Are you like 13, 14 at this point? Yeah. And so you were already into the blues. I mean, is that because of your stepfather's influence or how did you get into the blues? You know, I, I can't quite remember, but I know uh, my favorite bass player was and still is Ray Brown from the Oscar Peterson band and then his own band. He, he died about 10 years ago, but... He's the greatest bass player I, I ever heard. And uh, he's a jazz guy. But uh, we just started playing. Uh, I used to, there used to be, a, I probably still there, Donnell Library in Manhattan near the Museum of Modern Art. You could borrow LPs. And I went down there one time and I got, I remember getting the uh, the uh, Field Holler LP, you know, from, from what's his name? I went down there. Um, Alan Lomax. Alan Lomax, yes. And, uh, and I was really into that. I remember we used to do a version of uh, Take This Hammer. We kind of, we sang that one, and uh, I can't really remember how I got into it, but. Okay, so what was it about the field haulers that drew you in? Oh, is it just great, you know? Just take this hammer, whoop, ding it, ding it. <laughs> just, I don't know, and then I just started borrowing records and, and, uh, and listening to stuff. I mean, I listened to everything back then, but uh, rock and roll, I, I actually, the radio back then was uh, the top 40 radio, people like Lloyd Price and, uh, you know, people like that, you know. Um, I can't remember all the names. Who's that guy who did uh, Jesse Belvin? All these guys who were very, very, and it was all very, very blues influenced, you know. Right. Barbara Mason, I'm Ready, that's, that's, that song turned me on. We couldn't believe it. And uh, I listen to it nowadays. She's kind of out of tune, but still, it's just got this uh, <laughs> something to it. Yeah. But if so, you have to think of it, the, radio, the top 40 radio was all very R&B, bluesy stuff. I guess that's how it started. Okay, so you're... Before I, before I even started playing the bass, I was listening to that stuff. I had an older sister, you know, the Five Satins, the Penguins, the Moon Glows. The Moon Glows were just fantastic. They still are fantastic. People like that. So you're still in your teens. You're starting to play the blues. At what point do you think, I want to make music my career choice? Um, well, I went to college, 67. 
uh, before, I mean, we were, we were not we were just playing music, you know, we were writing some, so we wrote songs. We did some recording at the Pierce Southern building. The Pierce Southern, uh, they had a, they had, that's a publishing company. Famous one actually goes way back in the history of country music. Um, they, I didn't know it at the time. Uh, they had a recorded studio. We recorded some original songs and uh, nothing ever happened about it. Someone has a copy of it somewhere. But uh, I just kind of fell into it. I went to college in uh, 67 and I was a, a, um, a, almost an immediate casualty of the psychedelic revolution, if you know what I mean. And I dropped out of college. <laughs> what did you go to college for? I was an English major of all things. I didn't really, I didn't know what to do. I just, I think it was the first one in my family to ever go to college. And then I dropped out after about nine months. It was kind of a disappointment to them, I'm sure. But then I just started playing music around. I was go- upstate New York, a place called New Pulse, New York. And I started playing games up there. To play. It was wall-to-wall college kids and bars and bands and pizza parlors. I played with a lot of different bands up there, and they started making money. And that was, you know, I didn't need much money. Right. Rent was cheap, so I would just every now and then have to get a job for a month or two, and that that would put me into rent for about a year. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but you're still playing blues, or are we have we moved on we to something else? We've been doing a lot of blues. We've been doing a little rock and roll. You know, Chuck Berry always had always had to do Chuck Berry that kind of stuff. Did, never did any pop forty stuff, top forty stuff, till much later on, when I actually had to make a living, a real living. At what point do you meet with Eddie Kirkland? Oh, that's interesting. This guy named Pete Lowry had a record label called Tricks Records, T R I X, and he approached us one day. I was, me and my friend Dennis Mendervini was playing drums and me we were basic rhythm section. And he had, uh, he was going down to uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. There's going to be a show, Blues Comes to Chapel Hill. It's a record on, I think it's Flying Dutchman. I have it somewhere. And uh, he needed a backing band or backing rhythm section for a lot of his different artists. I got to play with Tar Heel Slim, Frank Edwards. I think we played with Guitar Shorty and we played with Eddie Kirkland. And uh, most of those guys were just homebodies, you know, at that time. But Eddie Kirkland was always traveling. He had a, he had his Ford station wagon, and he would just he'd come up north every year, you know. And we started playing with him. I've spent uh, ten years playing with him like that, going traveling like usually going north in the winter and south in the summer, you know, that kind of backwards. And went <laughs> went to Canada a few times, you know, traveled around Canada in the winter. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> once, I think we went one summer, went up and down the uh, Gas Bay Peninsula. Oh, nice area. Yeah, there have a lot of old French people up there. Okay, so you start learning the blues at an early age, um, and then now you have exposure to real blues men. And what did that exposure teach you? Oh, it taught me everything. But uh, I wasn't really, it wasn't until I came to Norway that I actually sat down. Kid Anderson, when we started playing together, handed me a bunch of uh, cop of, of uh, bootleg CDs he had made of all these old blues records. They wanted me to learn all the records, all the bass lines, right? I said, I don't need to do this. You know, I'm, I, I was older than him for one thing, and I thought I knew what I was doing. I started listening to it, and I mean, and like the first Muddy Waters records, there's all kinds of mistakes on the bass, you know? He wanted me to learn the mistakes, you know? He thought <laughs> that's supposed to be. So I did, you know, and I, and I really started getting into it then. But I, I, I just, I just listened to Eddie, and like he was teaching me stuff, you know, like, like uptown blues scales, you know, like, like uh, that kind of stuff, you know. Want me to play that? And he, Eddie did a lot of funky stuff. I remember one, one when I first started playing with him, 
he would start this really like fast kind of thing right now, start playing really fast and hard. But it went on for like 10 minutes. So <laughs> I, once you start like that, there's no, you know, you, you don't have anywhere to go. And I had to learn how to like play less and less and less because less is more actually when you play the bass, no matter what anybody tells you. This uh, simplicity is uh, the culmination of a lot of experience. Someone once said, "A mm -hmm. lot of thought you know, to get to the right simplicity." Is this your first real encounter with being on the road, or had you traveled a lot before Eddie? That was it. That was my first first encounter. It's quite interesting. He was quite a character. I can imagine. Prince. Yeah, I got some great stories about him. He would. Uh, he always, he liked to uh, he liked to take an old Japanese guitar or something like that and, and add pickups to it and stuff you know and, and something one time he had he had a three pickup guitar and he had two more pickups between them and he put them on <laughs> with a hammer and nail right and he had like you know those post box letters you get he had the, his name on there EK you know Eddie Kirkman and, and uh, he had an oven knob for a volume control so went from <laughs> off the broil you know all kinds of stuff like that and we were going into Canada one time. And we had this station wagon packed with everything in the world, four-piece band. My SVT cabinet, you know what that is? It's eight, 10-inch speakers. It's a huge cabinet. Right. And then drum set and guitar amps and clothing and stuff, and, and four of us. It was, a, it was a task to pack it, unpack it. And uh, we stopped at the, at the border going into Canada, and the, uh, the border guard wanted to see our equipment. It, it was just being a pain in the ass, because usually it, in Canada, things were... were uh, more expensive so they didn't want you going to canada and selling stuff to canadians right so right, canadians right. always check you, you know? but this guy didn't have any reason to check it but he just wanted to do it anyways so he said let me handle this he goes to the back of the car he opens it up and he pulls out his guitar which is in like one of those fake plastic leather cases that, that's <laughs> open at the bottom where the butt of the guitar is and fell together with shoelaces so he ties the shoelaces and pulls the guitar out. And it's that guitar with all the pickups nailed onto the front of it and the, <laughs> the oven knob. And he holds it up, like holds it out like this, like I said. And he look, he's looking at Dornley at it, right? And the guard goes, Is all your equipment like this? And then he goes, Oh yeah. And the guy <laughs> said, You guys can go. <laughs> and we laughed and laughed and laughed. Because they didn't think he didn't think that you would be selling this stuff in, in Canada. Yeah, he said all you because it looked like crap. You know, to him, it looked like crap. And I presume you re recorded with Eddie. Yeah, um, two or three albums. At least we did one with, with uh, where we just contributed. The first one we did with just a couple of songs that Tricks put out, and uh, and, and the rest of the stuff is done in Macon, Georgia, where he lived with with a band down there. And then we did another one for him, and then we did something for, for uh, JSP Records in England. And then we did another one for this guy in uh, in Mississippi, I think. That was the last one I did with him. We did it down in uh, uh, Oliver Sane's studio in the East East uh, St. Louis. Oliver Sane was uh, working with uh, Ike Turner. Oh. He, he worked with Ike Turner in the old days. As a matter of fact, he had the Cookies come in and sing harmony. Wow. Cookies who ended up being uh, Ray, the Reyes later on. And uh, we had and oh yeah, and uh, Johnny Johnson was on piano. Wow. But they didn't put his name on the album because he was uh, doing it for black money against his uh, record label, you know. But he had a, he had a box of cigars, right? It, it was after that movie, uh, the uh, the Chuck Berry movie. Hell, he yeah, takes yeah. Takes a box of cigars off and opens it up. It's full, right? Because these are cigars that uh, 
Well, what's his name? Keith gave me. Keith Ridges. He opens it up and shows everybody the chest, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he actually had a bottle of Tank Ray on the piano. He was great. I had a chance to meet him once. What a what a nice gentleman he was. We came the guitar player and I, this guy named uh, John John Spector. We came from New York City, flew out there. And uh, uh, New York City, and you're going to the studio. Time is money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Pop, 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 pop. They don't fool around, right? And uh, so we're like, we're there early. We're there before everyone else on time, I guess, but early. And we're all set up. We're waiting to go. We're holding our instruments, right? Eddie comes in. Drummer comes in. Johnny Johnson comes in. You know, all the same. Underneath the board, fixing something. You know, with a soldering gun. And, and slowly, okay. So we're ready. Let's take. We'll take the first first tracks. We take it. We take a cut. Cut one. We cut two. Eddie puts his guitar down. He walks out one door. The drummer walks out another door. All of us back under the board, fixing things. And and we're, the guitar player are standing there. We're, well, what's next? You know, we got to do the next song, right? You know, it's supposed to, that's what we're used to doing, but it wasn't like that. Eddie came back with some barbecue, you know, and they're, they're all sitting around talking and eating, and they're like, okay, let's do another song. It was hilarious. <laughs> but it's a good record, actually. So before you hooked up with Eddie, and oh, and why you were playing with Eddie, were you doing any other stuff, or yeah. was it? Yeah, just... Eddie, Eddie would come up for a few months every year, and then a couple of times a year he'd come up, and we'd do a couple of months together. And then he'd go back down south or go out to uh, Chicago or whatever. And, and Georgia. So you had to make a living playing in and around New York City at that time? No, no, upstate New York. Upstate New York, okay. An hour and a half north of New York City. And was that easy? Like, was it easy to get gigs and keep Well, there were, bars, there were bars everywhere that wanted little bands, you know, trios. I had all kinds of different bands, a trio here, a duo there, a big band, you know, quintet or something, all kinds of bands, doing all kinds of music. A lot of original music, a lot of blues, a lot of old rock and roll, a little R&B. And at this point, you're thinking, this is what I'm going to do for my life. More or less, yeah. Uh, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough, you know? Right. So how do you wind up with the um, Tom Russell band? There was a guitar player named Andy Harden, who was a Navy brat. He traveled all over America. So I think he's basically from Maryland, but I'm not sure. And he came through town with an Australian band called the Dingoes. And they were playing around until they got caught and thrown out of the country because they overstayed their visa. And he was in New Paltz. He had a girl, he met a girl, had a girlfriend. He was playing with Eddie Kirkland for a while. And then uh, he left and moved down to New York City with his girlfriend and lived in Brooklyn. And he answered an ad in the Village Voice for a guy looking for a guitar player. And it was Tom Russell. And they put a duo together. Then they, they Tom says, get a band together. They had a, a drummer. And Tom said, okay, let's go. And he said, no, we need a bass player. Tom said, what? Tom didn't even know that, right? So uh, he asked me to come down and do it. And by that time, I, had, I hadn't actually moved to New York City yet, but I was planning to move down to uh, Weehawken, New Jersey with my girlfriend who was going to work for a magazine. So I started commuting from New Pulse down to New York City, play with him, do the local bars and the honky-tonks on Long Island. We were doing a lot of cover of country music. Then he started adding more and more of his own stuff until we were doing all original stuff and traveling around America and back and forth across Canada. That was like 12 years of my life. Um, Tom Russell, not that you only played blues, but I mean, Tom Russell is probably more known for roots, folk he didn't music. Play, no, he didn't play blues. It was like singer-songwriter stuff. Yeah. Country music. So was that an adjustment for you? I learned a lot about country music. I had played in a country band. No, I had played in a country band before that, so I was prepared. 
was playing with this guy named Gibbs, Gibson Sage from West Virginia. He was he would come, he he moved up to upstate New York for a while. And we were playing up there. We had a pale steel and fiddle player and everything, the whole the whole thing. Before that, I was with a bluegrass band called the Arm Brothers with Danny Del Santo, who moved out to Austin, Texas, making a name of himself, and Evan Stover on violin, who's still around doing great stuff. And uh, I remember having an epiphany about uh, country music playing in the Fort Fairfield Hotel in Maine in the winter. And they called us for an early gig on a Sunday morning and we went down there, we were playing and we were all like tired and we just, because we started playing country music. I was always trying to make the bass lines a little more interesting or something, you know, like any kid would, you know. And then uh, I was just playing up there and I was just playing real simple. I'm just playing the one and the five and a couple of runs here and there. And I noticed, I started to look up and the band sounds good, you know. The band is singing good, the band sounds good, people are dancing, it's like, it works. I mean, oh man, that's why, you know, that's what I started really started learning how to pare things down and play less and less and play the most important notes. And so was it, an, was it easy to play with Tom Russell? Yeah, well, it was a lot of work and he was a pain in the ass, but it was, it was okay. Okay. No, but I went, meant more musically to kind of change directions. No, it was, it was, uh, you have to, I had to think about it a lot, yeah. And I had to learn a lot. I learned a lot about old time country music, which now I love to pieces, you know. But I didn't know anything. I'm from New York City. I didn't. Hank Williams, I thought he was a, a you know, a, a hick. Hank Williams, <laughs> Hank, Williams is, Hank Williams is a blues singer. If you listen to him, he's singing the blues. Yeah. You know, and I learned about it. I remember talking to Eddie Kirkland about the old days when he was a kid and he would listen to Uncle Dave Macon. Do you know who that was? No. Like, he was a guy from the 1920s who did all this funky old country music, just great. Sail away, lady, sail away. When I get my new house done, give my old one to my son. It's just great stuff. And Eddie Kirkman listened to that. And then I saw an interview with uh, Jimmy Reed, the country singer guitar player. He said he learned to play from a, a black guy on the street in where he, where he grew up. So it was back then, it was like, you know, it was back, back and forth until the record company started calling it race music and putting like labels on it. You know, it was all kind of like melding together. The singing brakeman, he was. He, uh, Jimmy Rogers, he sang a lot of blues, you know, and he he called it blues, you know. So, what was the difference between the experience of touring with Eddie Kirkland and the experience of touring with Tom Russell? Oh, a completely different world of the singer-songwriter genre, you know. Like this is the old joke: like, what's the difference between a singer-songwriter and a puppy? What? Sooner or later, the puppy will stop whining. <laughs> So, but 12, 12 years you spent with Tom Russell, and what did you learn from that experience? Well, we tra We, I mean, we traveled playing with uh, big festivals. We we played at the Frutigen Singer Songwriter Festival in Switzerland. We did it like nine years or more, I think. Anyway, we meet a lot of these singer songwriter people and hang out. Steve Young, for one, uh, the guy from from uh, Canada, Ian Tyson. Tyson, yeah, people like that. You know, we meet a lot of people like that. Uh, and uh, big audiences, a lot of places, people who revered Tom, you know. Tom Russell was like the singers, the songs, oh my God, you know. And then we go to their houses and uh, play at their houses sometimes or, or have dinner, they put us up and they just loved him to pieces, you know. And Fats Captain was in the band, you don't know, I don't know if you know who he is. He was playing with Jack White for a while. Hmm. And then John Prine until he died. And uh, he plays like violin and fiddle and uh, Pedal steel. As a matter of fact, he put some. I'm making a new record with my band, and Fats put some uh, overdubs on it with like three songs. And boy, he sounds so good. He mailed it in, you know. 
from, from Nashville. How does this kid from New York City wind up in Oslo? It was a girl. Of course. Yeah. I met a girl here. She was young and beautiful. We got married. We lived in New York for 10 years. We had twin girls and she uh, moved back to Norway. She went back to Norway on vacation and then called me so she wasn't coming home. So my girls were two years old, but then I had to make a decision what to do. Stay in New York and, you know, see them maybe once in a while or, or uh, move to uh, Oslo and be Papa, you know. I grew up in a home, a broken home, so I know what it's like to wonder, you know. Had you been to Europe or Norway at oh, that time? Russell, ben, we went to Norway, went to Oslo every year. That's how I met her. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. We would go every year, play two months at this place called the... Uh, oh, Dominic Christiana, which means old Oslo. And uh, we played there uh, seven nights a week, four sets a night for two months. We did that once or twice a year. Wow. A lot of work. And then we travel around Europe a lot, but I met her, I met her here, and, you know, brought her back to New York. So, okay, as you just decide, okay, this is the thing that I want to do. I want to be with my kids. Yeah. How, and I know that's oh, the right decent. decision. I didn't really so, know anyone. And you got to establish yourself as, and I, and I presume you're thinking, I'm going to go there and continue playing music and establish a career there. Yeah. That's all I could do. I never finished well, college. Yeah. I, I was doing house painting in Manhattan for a while, but boy, that sucks. I'm painting my girlfriend's basement right now. <laughs> kind, of, kind of strange, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so tell me about moving to Oslo, even though you know the place a little bit. How do you how do you decide I'm gonna? Well, I get had my left career. the top Russell band about six seven years before that, so I lost touch with everything. I uh, I got in touch with a guy who knew Tom really well, who lived in Oslo, and he uh, let me sleep on the floor in his computer room, so I found a place to stay. I made a big mistake. I I, uh, I had some money in the bank, a couple thousand bucks, and I I got it in a cashier's check because you always see it on TV. Oh, yeah. cashier's check! Anyone can cash it, you know. <laughs> you can't cash them anywhere. <laughs> it was impossible. I finally had to get someone I got to know, put it in their bank account. It took like three months to to, uh, to clear, and they took a big chunk of it, you know, as a fee. I should have yeah. just gotten checks. But uh, anyways, I, so I got here, and I the first year was just awful. Worst year of my life. But I started meeting people. And Sorry, worst year because it was just so hard to break in and make connections, or...? Yeah, I, did, I had to start from scratch. Yeah, I had a, I had a good. I met this guy named Tom, this guy, the guy Tom Shekelsetter, who took me in. We're still good friends now. He introduced me to this guy named uh, Runa Pedersen, who was like a, in the. Oh, Oslo has a blues club, not a bar, a club of people, who every, every almost every big town in, in Norway has a blues association. Right. Okay, I call it that instead of club. So society, I guess. Blue society. Yeah, blue society. Yeah. yeah, and they're all over the place. And this guy was one of the big wigs in the uh, Oslo Blue Society, and he took me under his wing, kind of, and like uh, I didn't have any money, so they had a a blues concert every every week, I think it was. And he, I come in there, and he let me in free, give me a couple of beer tickets to give the band, you know, so I had something to drink, and, <clears throat> and uh, we got to know each other, and I started playing more and more with different people. And people saw that I could actually play, and and I, I had brought my bass and a small amp, and a suitcase, and uh, I just worked my way up through the through the ranks, you know, like you have to do. I've had some experience working with 
Notodden Blues Festival. So I know I know about how much blues means to Norway. But how is it that they have all these blues societies all over the place? I mean, I, I think there's like a ridiculous amount of them in the country. They have a blue, they have a national blues association where they all get together and talk about stuff. Must be at least 30 different towns that have big cities that have blues, blues yeah. associations. So do you know where that comes from? No, no. I, but I know like the, uh, you know, like the, the merchant marines, the Norwegian sailors would come back in the 50s and bring LPs and stuff like that. The same thing that happened in England. Like you hear the Beatles and Rolling Stones yeah, yeah. talk. The same kind of thing. They have all these old LPs and stuff. The country music is big here in the, in the, in the hinterlands of, of, you know, Buck Owens was here one year and they went nuts, you know. But then again, you had the uh, Stack Soul Review come through in the 60s and it's, there's still an existing tape of it from the national radio, uh, radio NRK, the TV, national TV. I have a copy of it somewhere. It's pretty cool. Otis Redding <laughs> and Sam and Dave and Duck Dunn playing bass with everybody and Al Jackson Jr. on drums, you know, and the horns. Oh. It was so very cool. How, okay, so it takes you a while to establish yourself and start playing. And, and what do you learn about the Norwegian blues scene? Or describe that scene for me at that point. And we're talking 1997. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most, of you, most bands, it's a, it's a small country. It's like maybe five and a half million people in the whole country, maybe five and a half thousand, six hundred thousand in, Nor- in Oslo. Small, right. small place. There was one place that had blues, you know. And, um, most gigs are on the weekend, Friday and Saturday. If you got a Thursday night, that's something special, you know. And um, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of bands, a lot of bands, but they, there was a lot of. I'm pre- I'm pretty hard on drummers, I think, uh, at least uh, I thought I was, but I know a lot, a couple of drummers that I left and when I left for Norway in New York, years later, they tell me how much they appreciated what what we what we did together. I'm not, I'm not teaching them really. We're just learning together, you know, about how to keep a groove, where to mm. put the fucking fills. Sorry. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it really annoys me, you know. <laughs> Duffles, I mean, uh, we, uh, the, drummer, the drummer I play with a lot now, this guy Alexander Pettis, really taught me a lot about shuffles. There's so many different shuffles, you know. When I was a kid, I didn't even know what a shuffle was. I was just playing 4 4 on the bass, you know, it could have been a swing, it could have been a shuffle. I, you know, I never really paid attention to it. You know, now, right. of course, I know exactly what it is. And uh, uh, well, I told you, like, Kid Anderson gave me all those old records and wanted me to learn the bass lines just the way they were, even the mistakes, you know? Okay, so how difficult is that? To Obviously, learning is easy, but to learn even the mistakes and play the mistakes. No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I did. He told me he wanted me to. So that's the way it is. I said, no, that's not the way it is. And he figured it out that I was right, you know? I, you know, I'm still learning. I have to learn. I got a gig coming up in the end of the month. I've got to learn 25 songs for that. I know a few of them, but I got to learn 20. It's like, it's like outlaw country thing. But uh, I do this stuff all the time. I played, uh, when I played in no time with Kid Anderson, I had to learn like 20 songs. So I had to sit down and learn them. You know, I even write notes, which really annoyed the kid. He, he said, he said, throw that book in the fjord, you know? But uh, <laughs> I can't remember everything, you know. But I'm learn- I have to learn stuff all the time. I have to learn mu- different songs and music. I just re- do some recording with. I did a recording with Amin uh, uh, Morud, and I had to learn a couple mm-hmm. songs for that. So, so you start playing, um, getting a few more gigs. How do you meet up with Kid Anderson? He um, was a whiz kid. 
he playing guitar from a very young age, you know, and he yeah. moved to Oslo from uh, his, his hometown, which is about 250 kilometers or something, two and a half hours south of here, something like that. And um, he was he was young. He was 16 or 17, I think. But uh, Rune, Rune Pedersen, the guy who, oh, we, Rune Pedersen got involved with this club called Muddy Waters that opened up like sometime in the late 90s. And um, I was the uh, leader of the house band. Rune got me in there as the leader of the house band. And we'd have a four-piece band. And once a month, we'd bring in an American artist and do a week with them, maybe two weeks, like one week at Muddy's and then one week traveling around. And, uh, and dude, they had music there seven nights a week. Only club that ever did that in, in Norway, I think. Or wow. blues club, especially. Maybe someone else did, but not like this. It was very, it was really good. And Kid Anson was the first to talk with. And uh, we had a cheat because he was too young to actually be there. But he was, he was just great. You know, he, knew, he was really good. You know, he's one of these guys who thinks of something and he can play it. You know, and he's, he's and, special. Uh, my, my my mother died while I was here, and I was listening to the classical music station. This piece of music came on. And it just broke my heart. And I got back and I, I hummed it to him. Next day, he shows up with the CD. It was Haydn. And it was a slow movement from one of Haydn's, uh, you know, masterpieces. So, and he knew, he knew it just from me humming it to him. He gave me the CD. I still have it. Wow. Okay, so you become, obviously becoming the house band or leading the house band at Mighty Waters. Well, that must have been a good gig, right? I mean, at that point, now you're kind of established. I was making money. It was a real gig. You know, it's like we were working all the time and making money and learning stuff, meeting people. We had Nappy Brown once. We had Willie Big Eyes Smith, Homesick James, people like that. Swedish guys. And uh, and uh, Sven, uh, Sven Zetterberg. Do you know him? You ever hear of him? He's from Sweden. I he have heard of him, yeah. yeah. When Eddie Kirkland and I went over to Sweden in 71, I think it was, and he was in the backing band. It was Eddie and I and Sven and this guy named Big Tex on drums. Sven, uh, Eddie Cole started calling him Sven Pee Wee, and his name stuck. I met him, and uh, other, there's, there's just some really good guitar players over here. Holy moly. Uh, Kid Anson, Armin Morrood, Knut Reisrud. Uh, these are just the guys who spring to mind, but there's a lot more than that. I mean, just the fact that your club could be open seven days a week speaks to the fact that there's obviously an audience. But tell me about the Norwegian audience. Well, they really they like music. And they like to, they, they, don't, they don't dance that much. And uh, we had to teach them not to clap on the one and three. <laughs> that wasn't a big deal. That's really, that can really throw the band off. Um, uh, there's a lot, this, it's mostly an older crowd now, you know, as you can imagine, they're, you know, they're my age and, uh, and older, a little younger, some, but some young people. We have some young guitar players coming along. Uh, uh, they're, they, you know, people like to drink over here. You know, they, yes. get, they, can, get, they can get rowdy. At, you know, like, they can be very normal during the day and very rowdy at night. And it's like, but for whatever reason, it's it just seems like, and I don't know if this is true or not, but the the northern countries they seem to. The winters are short. I mean, long and Finland. I first time I went to Finland, I couldn't believe. It. I thought I was. I thought I'd seen it all. And Russia. I mean, I've been to Russia twelve times now. And in Moscow and, and the environments around there, and and I mean those people, you open a bottle of vodka and just throw the top away. <laughs> you know, that's the way it is. Right. But I mean, when you started, 
Could you have made a living just playing in Norway? I know you've played more than that, but was that the goal? Or like, no, we is it important? We would travel. We would travel, you know, um, travel down to Germany, the Benelux countries, a little bit in Paris and uh, maybe Italy, stuff like that. I, went to, I took my band to America twice, but then we had to uh, pay our own way, basically, because there's no money. The, the gigs pay a lot more here than they do in America. Let's start mm -hmm. there. All right. So like in New York City, I was making 50 bucks a night for like 20 years, you know, except on the weekends. And uh, here, uh, I mean, I'll make like three, four thousand kroner, which is like uh, four thousand kroner is almost five hundred bucks, I think, a night. Right. Although things cost a little more there too. Yeah, yeah, things cost a lot more, but still, there's a lot more money here. Yeah, yeah. So, the fact that you went to the states was it just because the guys in the band, some of them never been to America. They wanted to go see what America was like, and we we booked a couple of gigs. We traveled around a little bit, California. Played up at Portland at that big festival they have up there in, May, in uh, Washington, I oh. guess, at Oregon. Right. And we did the Sun Porch Festival in Oregon, you know, stuff like that. Played down in LA and San Francisco and little towns. And, and uh, but we basically we got a, we got some support money from the government, the, the Arts Council and stuff here. They they give us some support money, so they helped pay for the flight tickets and stuff like that. But by the end of the, the two weeks, three weeks over there. You're spending a lot of money out of pocket to see eat and stuff, you know. So it's like mm -hmm. an experience more than a, than a gig. What do you think that experience gave to them? I mean, you obviously know the scene and you you come from the states, but what do you think it meant to? I didn't know that scene. I'm at California. I'm from New York. California's a whole other <laughs> was a whole other world to me. I remember walking out of the hotel. I needed to get a cup of coffee. There was nothing there. I walked out of this hotel in Long Beach, and there's, there's nothing. I look around. There's nothing. <laughs> box and box. Just more buildings you know i'm you know in new york city walk out of, wherever you are you walk out there's a pizza parlor a chinese restaurant like a store or a bar they're all there like in one block <laughs> they don't seem to walk much <laughs> no but uh but i mean they pe people over here love america most mm -hmm. of them love america. my girlfriend's crazy about america and they were shocked when donald trump got elected they were and so disappointed and so and it almost, almost makes them sad you know? I'm not sure if that they're the only ones. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, because uh, America, you know, you, you go to move to America, you're an American, right? Wherever yeah. you come from the world, you know? My parents, your parents, you know, came from different places. My parents came from, they don't even know where, somewhere in Czechoslovakia, somewhere in Hungary. I never got a straight answer. You know, and you, go, you move to America, your kids are Americans, you're American, even if you have a thick Italian accent in China and, or a Chinese accent in Chinatown, you know? You're still an American. How do you view yourself now? I'm an American. So when you look back at America and what's going on, how, what does it make you think? I mean, Texas. They have an expression here called health Texas, H-E-L-T. It means completely Texas, which means if someone goes nuts, they say he went totally Texas. They actually say that. You know, I mean, and look, they just passed that law where anybody in Texas can carry a gun without a permit, without any training. He can have it concealed. He can have it out in the open. Anybody except, you know, people, felons, I guess, and stuff like that. But but anyone can carry. I mean, that's what could go wrong. You know, <laughs> even the police in Texas are saying no, no. Right. Yeah. And also their new abortion law is just ridiculous. We're, 
I, I read how they got around, they got to the Supreme Court not to, not to approve it, but to just not say anything about it because the government is not enforcing the law. Right. They have free citizens turn other people in and get a $10,000 reward if they think someone, <laughs> I mean, oh my God. it's a handmade tale, you know, we're right there. We're yeah. right there. It's insane. It's insane. And Donald, Donald Trump, my God, he's raising all this money by telling people he's going to run again. And he's not spending any of it except on himself. You know, he won't even yeah. give Giuliani any money. <laughs> and Giuliani's up against a billion dollar from the Dominion voting machine company, right? Billion dollar suit or something like that. And, and that woman Powell released the Kraken. Right. These last four years have just about drove me insane. When this whole thing started, my girlfriend was uh, freaking out. She said, you can't you gotta stop putting all this political stuff on Facebook. People are going to think you're nuts. And then she went to one of those uh, uh, pink hat pussy rallies here in Oslo and came back. She was on fire. You know? <laughs> How, at what point did you think, of, you know, I talked to um, Ed Murphy. Ed Murphy. Oh, yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah. So I talked to Ed Murphy about his adjustment to Norway. And he said that it was really difficult. And I presume it was difficult for you initially. Yeah. How was it now, many, many years later? It's pretty easy. Pretty easy. I mean, I'm, I'm so happy I'm here. The last four years, I was so grateful to be here in New York, you know, and especially yeah. with this pandemic and no gigs. I mean, I don't know. My, my pension from America is about 140 bucks a month. And even my pension here is very low because I don't, uh, I wasn't here long enough to get a full pension. So it's very low, but I, I'm work, I can work as a musician. And I'll just keep working until I fall down, you know? What are you gonna do? Which may be how, sooner than we think. <laughs> how was the last 18 months for you? No gigs at all. Nothing, spent all my savings, but uh, I get by. I guess the other thing I should mention is back in 2010 and 2012, you won the Norway equivalent of a Grammy. For oh, yeah, years. yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, my band, the Billy T band. Yeah, that was, that was really nice. We, uh, you know who Vidar Busk is? Yes. Yeah, he was another one of those whiz guys, whiz kids, right? And uh, I, I beat Amin and Vidar for that first uh, or second. Oh, really? Film histories, yeah, the second one. My, my understanding is Vida has a lot to do with the, the blues being what it is in Norway. Yeah, prob probably. He's a big inspiration to a lot of guitar players. He has, he has a song of mine on his new record, a song I wrote with this guy called Bill Booth. I think I sent you a link to the Bills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a song I wrote on that album called uh, Like Your Last Chance to Hurt Me. Vida put it on his, uh, on his new album. Which oh, Kid nice. Anderson came over here and, and produced. Kid Anderson wow. came over playing studios in San Jose and produced it. And it just came out, I think. So I, I guess we should clarify. You have I know of two bands that you're involved in, the Bills yeah. and the Billy T band. Yeah. Um, and the Bills, from what I heard, is not necessarily a a blues band. Like an Americana. Yeah. Some nice music. Yeah, he's he, he, Bill Booth does a lot of he does a lot of, he writes his own songs and does plays a lot of country music fiddle country fiddle you know and, and guitar and we were just traveling around as a duo just to make some money and then we started liking it and um, so we decided to make a record we made it right before Corona hit 
So there goes our um, release tour. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully it can pick up right now. Yeah, so we've got some gigs coming up. And I also work with this guy named Joachim Tinnerhol, who's Kid Anderson's cousin. And he has a band here. He does a lot of blues, mostly blues. My band, I don't know if you heard the last record we did. We had violins on it, violin section. And we did sometime was inspired by uh, Across 110th Street. You know that song? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and stuff like that. So uh, that didn't, that, we got nominated for Spillman's for that, but we did not win. I think it was too, a little too, um, R&B or something, 70s R&B. I'm not sure what they thought of it. But so with with the Bills, which is more Americana, is, is it the same audience that you have in Norway or is it different? Uh, slightly different. With Bill Booth, there's a lot of country people come out to see him and people come out to see me, I guess. And uh, and we, we talk, you know, him and I, we make jokes and we tell stories and stuff like that. And uh, I do a Tom Russell, we do a Tom Russell song, St. Olaf's Gate. And uh, we make fun of the fact that I don't speak Norwegian. It's part, <laughs> of, the show, you know? it's part of the show now. But but not a problem for you? No, no. Only when I'm in a party and people are talking and I don't know what's going on. Right. And I feel kind of silly. But I took some courses for a while, but I didn't get very far. As you can tell, I'm not very academically inclined, I guess, dropping out of college. And... Yeah, at least you went to college. Yes, six months, <laughs> seven months. So what's coming up next? What happens What happens now as things start to open up? I'm making a new record. It's going to be a, when uh, when Corona hit, Kid Anderson told me that um, Latimer, do you remember him? Yeah, yeah. Let's straighten, let's straighten it out. He was he was uh, got in touch with, with Kid Anderson. They were going to make a new record. And uh, he, he said, maybe, and I suggested, maybe I can write a song for the record. He said, yeah, try. So I got a hold of his, his hit, Straighten It Out, I... I modeled the song after that, you know, like thinking that maybe he'll like it because it was close, similar to his, his hit. It's called Whatever Happened to Love, you know. Tell me, brother, tell me, sisters, you know. Uh, but um, then the COVID hit and the whole thing went out the window. But before that, I got approached a friend of mine, this guy named Kim, Kim Birdseth, who's a producer, he's got his own studio here in Oslo. He does a lot of, he does a lot of famous people. And, uh, I said, help me write this, help me make a good demo of this song and we'll, we'll split the, the proceeds, right? And he said, yeah, sure. So we made a demo in the studio and I sent it off to Kid and then the whole, whole thing fell apart. But Kim and I kind of enjoyed writing together and we started just writing songs to see what would happen. You know, we didn't have any gold in mind. You know, then we started thinking maybe we could sell these songs to someone else and we started trying to write for other people. And I, I, I helped write lyrics for this country band and it, it, very nice. It came out very nice. You know, we just started writing more and more. We get together whenever he has some free time, and, and we suddenly we have a whole. We have like 10, 12 songs. What are we gonna do? And we started using some of the ones that we wrote for other people, and, and we, we we did. He he played guitars, and we had our friend Alice Pedersen, shuffle drummer, come in and play with us, and 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 now we have a whole record of stuff. I'm trying to I'm trying to get the rest of the band in now, doing overdubs and stuff. We're gonna put it out. But it's, it's gonna be a lot different. It's going to be a lot different than anything we did before. But first of all, because I'm working with a producer. I've never worked with a producer in my life. We always did it ourselves. And uh, and he, this guy is a, you know, you know, Pro Tools is and all that, the, the, the computerized <laughs> recording stuff. He's a whiz. He's like, oh, you want, I said, maybe we can, before I even get it on my mind, he's done it. You know, it's like, blah, 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 all done. It's like, it's an amazing world, you know? And uh, it certainly is. 
So what what inspires you to do like you just did something well I guess it's been a while that you did something with the Bills you have your blues band and this sounds like it's something very different yeah because it's going to be a lot different yeah so we have a story about Trump I've called it is what it is remember him saying that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mr. Trump 400,000 people have died yeah well it is what it is I'm really into lyrics the lyrics have to do something for me you know, and, and over here, people don't even, some people don't even listen to the lyrics. They just like the music, you know, because they, they may be too fast for them. I don't know. But to me, lyrics are the most important thing. I guess I got that listening to uh, uh, the singer-songwriter stuff and, and, the, and the old blues, you know, some, and the, Hank, Hank Williams, you know. When I was a kid, I, did, I just missed him out of hand, but he's like, he was a genius. Mm-hmm. And that, does it concern you that you're doing something that's different, that, other than your Americana and blues music? That releasing something that's a little—I just follow what what feels good. You know, this, it's always been like that with me. I never—I only started. I actually—I never really got serious about writing music till um, Muddy Waters Post. That was about what, twelve years ago, I guess, ten years ago, something like that. And then I, the, the Billy T Band just became a band. And we had to like, you know, we decided to start making records and I started, I had to start writing, writing music. For example, the last album, there's only two covers on it. I think like that all the rest was original. This album's going to be all original. The next one, with all these songs in it. I can't wait to play it for you because I would love to get your opinion. Like, what the hell is it? You know, <laughs> is it, it's not really, you know, it's not really blues. It's not, it's kind of not really rock. I don't know what it is. It's like. When Muddy Waters closed. I mean, obviously, it was a shock. No, no, we were you. Oh, okay, but were you established enough that you thought, okay, we could, we can make it as a band touring? Yeah. So it wasn't a big adjustment. Well, a lot less work. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, here's the thing: when I was living in New York City before I moved here, I was working every night of the week, and on the weekends, sometimes two gigs a day. You, and the more you work, and I work in all different bands. Every night was a different. Like I had sets that. Every Sunday was the same band, or Monday a different band. Tuesday, you know what I mean? And uh, and you—that's how you really learn how to play. You know, when you do stuff like that, playing with different people and playing all the time. So when we had Muddies, we had the house band, which changed over the years. We had different drummers, different guitar players. But when you play that much, you play every like every day of the week sometimes, you know, or three or four days a week, which is really hard to do in Norway. Like I was saying, it's mostly just weekends if you can get it. You're not practicing at home. You're not practicing with the other guys. You're out playing in front of people on a stage. That's when you learn. That's when you know what sounds good, what feels good, what to change, what not, what to keep. You know what I mean? What works, mm-hmm. what doesn't work. You know? Don't tell jokes. If you don't talk too fast when you tell jokes in Norway. <laughs> you know they won't understand you. I mean, that's the whole thing. And but. Every, to me, everything is based, rock and roll, jazz, country music, all has blues in it. You know, the, 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 the blues changed Western music drastically. You know, you had mm-hmm. John Philip Sousa, you know, stuff like that. You know, and, and then you had, uh, you know, these guys playing fiddle on the plantation. That was the original blues instrument, right? Fiddle for the dances. You know, it wasn't guitar. And, uh, and you know, and the way it evolved, like changing the scales, you know, the blues scale. You know, it's all the wrong, they're wrong notes, right? They're not like, it's not, a, you're, not you're supposed to be playing a major scale. No, but this note sounds good. You know, and it gives a little tension. It's all about tension and release, you know? 
you build this up to tension, then you let it go and you resolve to the one chord. And it's all based on that, if you ask me. I mean, everything. And, and uh, it, so if I play like rock and roll, there's this, this going to be some blues in there, you know? If I play country music, there's going to be some blues in there. If I play this music I'm playing now, there's, there's a lot of blues in there, you know? I mean, I'm singing. I'm trying to sing. I'm trying to mean it when I sing it, you know? People who sing and don't mean it to me, it's like, you know, stay home. Um, I'm going to have to wrap this up, but let me ask you one final question. Tell me what ha what music has meant to you in your life? Oh, everything. Everything. I mean, music is uh, that's what I do. It gives me it gives me joy, purpose, and it makes me feel good about myself. You know, it gives me standing in the community. I don't know, not really, but <laughs> I feel like, uh, like I'm doing something. I feel like a, like a mensch, as my mother would say. I, I mean, is that, I, I can't, I can't put an imagined limb without music. I listen to music in the car constantly, you know. That's what I learned to sing songs. When I'm writing songs, I sing that my lungs out while I'm driving my car. People must see me driving down the street. Oh, what's the matter with that guy? <laughs> well, music is, uh, you know, aside from my kids, you know, it's everything. Well, Bill, thank you so much for doing this. I know we've been trying to hook up for a while, um, but I really appreciate you taking this time. Oh, my pleasure, man. It's fun. I hope I didn't talk too much. No, no, no. No, it was great. I appreciate getting to know you a little bit. Thanks. Thanks, man.